the church staff doesn't believe that I play fair. Um, they have told me for the last several years that when I tell people to come comfortably dressed for the church picnic, that I always make myself the exception to the rule and I come with a tie on and coat and looking the part, you know, and then I race to the office to try to change and then get to the church picnic and there's always a delay of time there. And uh, so I decided to bite the bullet today, obviously, jeans <laughs> and this shirt. And it, it just, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, it just it just reminds me um, when I received uh, my first appointment as a pastor, uh, they sent me as far down into the corner of Georgia as you could go. Um, I was at Colquitt and the only place further than that would be Donaldsonville. But I was at Colquitt, Georgia. And uh, one of the one of the graces of being a pastor is being able to meet other pastors in the community. And there was another pastor that was there who was a Mennonite pastor. His name is David Ebersole. And in conversation with David Ebersole one day, he was just such a wonderful man. Um, he was asking about my call into the ministry, and I was telling about my father, who is now a retired uh, United Methodist minister who had been important in my life and, and my calling, but also another person in our conference by the name of Dave Hansen, who was so crucial. He was the, uh, the youth coordinator for our conference uh, during some, some years that, that I was needing to be steered in some better ways. And uh, in conversation with him, it had such an effect on me. And so I was sharing this information with, with David. And so it was natural for me to, to look at him and to say, now, tell me about your call into ministry. And he said, well, of course, he said, we, we moved here. We were transplants uh, from Pennsylvania. We came down. Uh, we were a part of a Mennonite group there that had in conversation uh, with each other uh, determined that we needed to send a missionary to Georgia. And and so um, he said, literally, we sat in a circle there and we drew straws. <laughs> and he said, I got the shortest straw. <laughs> and I said, you're kidding me. And he said, I'm not kidding at all. He said it was at that point that I became a missionary for the Mennonites and I was appointed to go and to start a church down in Miller County. I said, that is absolutely fascinating. That's one of the things that I will always remember about David Ebersole. But there's another thing that I will remember about David Ebersole. And that is that, that he was not only a preacher, but he was a farmer as well. Um, during the week, you would see him out and around in the fields in the community. And he would look basically like this, you know, like I do this, this morning. Uh, when he went to church on Sundays, the only thing that, that changed, I noticed with him, was that he would button the top <laughs> button. That's the only thing that changed about his dress. And so just a few moments ago, I wasn't so dressed, but now I have my Sunday go to meet in church clothes on. <laughs> the button, the button. It's all about the button. Let me uh, share from my heart here. Um, I believe that our concepts of love are very much shaped by our culture. Um, we are only six weeks out from, uh, from Valentine's Day now, you know, but it still is sort of reverberating there. Uh, we gave all of these, uh, these gifts, these cards, this candy, you know, uh, inscribed with different messages. And 
we had such a, a, a blast. It happens every year. Uh, parents give gifts to children and children give gifts to parents and children give ch- gifts to other children, you know, and cards. And it's just a celebration, uh, a wonderful celebration. Uh, but that is really a part of our culture more than it is a part of what we are reading about today. Uh, the poetry that we read, um, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways Elizabeth Barrett Browning would say, and she listed many things um, that were a part of her her dream life with with her lover. Um, in prose, we hear those those words, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? And we're just so moved by Shakespeare's writing, you know, and it pulls us into the story of the romance of this young couple. And it's fascinating. Um, I know uh, when our girls were little, they loved to watch romantic movies. And so we saw all of those, you know, the Sleepless in Seattle and Titanic and My Best Friend's Wedding and all of those. We had this long list of, of, of movies that we just uh, kept around and kept seeing over and over again. Um, and it occurs to me that these coax us toward this understanding of love as something that it really is not at its very core. It is not so much about eros and romance as it is about agape and about loving kindness. Now, I want you to be patient with me here for just a little bit, um, but I feel like that we have, we have, have given ourselves so entirely, it seems, to this cultural understanding of love that we are doing so at our own detriment. There was a study that I read about just recently about uh, one of the dilemmas of high-rise apartment living in New York City is that, that cats will jump off of ledges. It's, this, is, this is a sad, sad thing. Um, and they had, had 130 cases. This did not end up well for many of those cats, you know? Um, Sabrina uh, was remarkably able to survive after having jumped off of a window ledge 34 stories up. How that happened, I do not know. Um, They say cats land on their feet. Sabrina must have landed on her feet just the right way. But she survived that that jump. But that's not what the study was about. Not whether the cats could survive or not from that high of a fall. What they were wondering about in the study was why in the world were the cats jumping to begin with? And it came to them after doing some research. Um, I'm sure that billions of dollars were spent on this. That, um, that they came to the notion that, that uh, cats have this affinity for birds and birds flying near balconies will make cats forget that they are 34 floors above the ground. And so the cat will reach out or jump for the bird and then it is a terrible story that begins to develop. Um, I believe that we, if we're left to our own devices, that culture, culture will do its mark on us and that we will not even know what happened. We won't know what happened. We will have been so entertained, so entertained by the culture's idea of what love is, that all of those things will entice us to the point that we just lose ourselves completely in it. 
And it is not my belief that our salvation comes by way of bridges of Madison County or our salvation comes by way of Seattle, you know, or our salvation comes by way of Romeo and Juliet. Our salvation comes by way of Christ, of Jesus Christ in particular. And this is exactly what John is lending his ear to and his thoughts to. Uh, throughout this sermon series, as we've thought together about these, this short little letter, he has said over and over again, beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And even though those words are not read in particular for today's scripture reading, they are contained in that you can hear that, that his focus is there. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's an interesting statement that he goes into then. He says, and everyone who loves the parent loves the child. Now, in a real world, this does not work out always so well that way, you know, because I know some parents that I dearly love and they have children that are crazy. They have... <laughs> They do. And it, it tests my abilities, you know, to, to think, how did this happen? You know, these persons just just so wonderful. And, and yet the next generation, what went wrong with all of that? And my, I'm distracted in the midst of that because it's easy to love the parents. It's not so easy to love the child. But that's not what John is getting at here. John is trying to make us understand that if we love God, then it is a part of our DNA to love each other. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We are family and we are called to be lovers of each other. Whatever is born of God, he goes on to say, conquers the world. This kind of love is revolutionary. For whatever is born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Now, I would have expected him to say our love or maybe to say Christ's love or God's love. But he uses this opportunity to say the most important thing that he has said in this entire letter. He says, and this is the victory that conquers the world, our faith. Now, you may not have thought this before, but let me tell you that you are a theologian. There is nobody that is sitting here. In fact, there is nobody in the world that is not a theologian. Even if you're an atheist, you've got some idea about God, even if you believe that he doesn't exist. You are a theologian. We are born theologians. We have ideas about God. And here... There's an important question that I want to raise to you because he goes on to say in this fifth verse, who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so I'm going to ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, I'm not asking this rhetorically this morning. I'm asking for a verbal response. And so let me put it to you again. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. This sounds like the most important question in the world, right? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Answer it again. The most important thing, though, is that you understand the 
kind of son of God that Jesus is. That's what John is getting at in this letter. Not simply that you believe that Jesus is the son of God, but what kind of son of God do you believe that Jesus is? In verse six, he goes on to say, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one, is the one that testifies for the spirit is the truth. Uh, years ago when our girls were little, we were down at Epworth by the sea, St. Simon's Island for a little vacation. Um, one of those torrential downpours a coastal rain came while we were out wandering the yards there and we were getting drenched. We ran for the nearest cover that we could and we went in the door and when we got on the inside, there was a lady that was standing there and she looked at us and she said, oh good, she said, the tour will begin in five minutes. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, what is this about? And I, we, had, we had ventured into one of the slave cottages there and she was going to give this historical uh, uh, tour of that little structure. And she thought we had shown up for that. Now, it may be that you were here for the baptism, right? But you're here, you are here, right? You are on the tour now, right? <laughs> Yeah, everybody that's in this place is on the tour now, even if you didn't realize it, even if you didn't expect that you were supposed to get something out of this sermon, you're on the tour now. So bear with me for just a couple of minutes and then we will share together in the high celebration of communion. In the early church, they were grappling with Christology, the Christology of who Jesus was. Some people believed literally, they literally believed that the spirit came down and made Jesus the Christ at his baptism. But then just before he was crucified, the spirit took off that Jesus was Jesus Christ between that moment that he was baptized with the water. But before he died on the cross, if you read through some of the scripture, you can sort of see how they got the notion to that. My spirit, I give unto you, you know. So they believed that Jesus became Jesus Christ at baptism and then that he became just a dead man at the time of his crucifixion. There was another group that was a part of the early church that believed that even though we call him God, that he only seemed human, that it was this apparition that was there, that Jesus was Jesus, but he only seemed human because everybody knows that God cannot die. And so they were using good logic. In the midst of this, the church was trying to figure out who in the world Jesus was. And you're saying to yourself, I'm glad we don't have to deal with that. We got that figured out. We got the book, you know, we've got everything figured out. That's not a part of what we are now. But, oh, let me tell you that it's still an issue today because some people believe that they can be followers, be believers of God without being an expression of Christ's love in the world. And John would say, not possible, not possible. If you believe in Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, and if you understand the nature of who he was, 
If you understand that he was he was Christ the entirety of his journey from birth until death and resurrection. If you believe the water and the blood, then you will understand that Christ is a part of loving the world and in every relationship. Some of you may realize that the United Methodist Church is going through some soul searching right now. In fact, our bishops have been meeting this past week. They have received a report from a group that's called the Commission on the Way Forward because we are such at a stalemate, um, especially in regard to a couple of issues in the church. The bishops have come back with a report that they have uh, gathered um, a majority of opinions, at least in that group, even though there are diverse ideas behind one of the models that has been presented that is called the one church model. Now, let me tell you from the standpoint that I'm at right now, I like the name of that, the one church model. But I also like the idea behind what you and I are called to be. We are called to be lovingly respectful of each other. At the first of this passage, it says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ and has been born of God and everyone who loves the parent loves the child. You and I have a tendency to become suspicious of others that think differently than us. I hope that we as a church will be able to stay as unified as we say that we are in our name. One of the ways in which this can happen, and I call it you to be evidence, love each other. Come on, get real. Find ways to make your life this sacrificial love expressed to others. In the church, outside of the church, wherever you go, And you will be amazed at God using that for good purpose. It will be evidence of a loving God. It will be evidence of God through you loving neighbors.